This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. on one of these connect cards. Obviously, you can put your information there. If uh, you are new and you do that, you give us your address. We would love to send you something in the mail this week just to say thank you for being here. Also, uh, there are places there that you can communicate prayer requests, decisions that you've made, other pieces of information you want us to have. So please, it's our desire to get one of these from each family here today. Uh, when you filled that out at some point today, you can drop it in the offering bags as they go by at the end of our time together. With that, let me pray for us, and then we'll just jump right in. God, we've had some moments here where we've been able to sing of your power and your love and your grace. My prayer is that we feel all of those things moving in us now. As we open up your word and hear what you have to share with us, God, help us to see and hear you speaking clearly to our lives. Because we are convinced that you have something to say to each and every one of us today. In your name we pray, amen. Well, welcome to week number five. Week number five of our Wanderers series this summer. And uh, the Wanderers series is really kind of out of the book of numbers. And one of the things we try and do, especially in the summers here at Journey, is we try and take a larger section of scripture and we really kind of focus in on it, see what it has to say to us, but also try and place it in the larger kind of context of where it's at in the Bible. And so the book of Numbers tells the story of the people of Israel. They have just come out of enslavement to Egypt and the Pharaoh, and they're on their way to the promised land, this land that uh, their father Abraham was told a couple of things. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Abraham was uh, kind of the start of the people of Israel, and he was promised that he would have many descendants. In fact, a great nation would come from him, and uh, that this nation would have a land to call its own, a great place, a place of blessing from God. And so uh, the people of Israel, they're on this journey from enslavement, uh, kind of this dark period in their history, enslavement in Egypt, uh, freed by God. (laughs) On their way to the promised land, day and night. That's what I should have said right there, right? Day and night. And uh, it's this journey that should have just taken a couple of weeks, but it ends up taking Israel 40 years. 40 years because they make unfaithful choices. And it's some of those unfaithful choices that we want to learn from. And so uh, today we are in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, and uh, if you'll remember from the last few weeks, Israel, they're up to the edge of the promised land the, the first time they make it two-thirds of the way there. And they decide to send some spies 
to kind of check out the land. And all 12 spies, they send 12, and all 12 come back with this report. The land is fantastic. It's everything we could hope and imagine for. But 10 of the 12 come back with a different report as well. The people, they're big and they're strong. There's they're, they're everywhere. There's so many of them. They're numerous. And, and they, they talk about the, the cities being fortified. We don't know how we can defeat them, they say. And the people hear this report. And they decide with the ten instead of the faithful two. They decide with the ten and they say, you know what? We don't think we can do this. And God is greatly displeased. So he turns the people of Israel back out into the desert and he makes them wander and they're wandering, and they're wandering until, and the scripture says, an entire unfaithful generation dies off. So 38 years, they kind of wander through the desert, and right here in chapter 20, they're up to the edge of the promised land again. In uh, Numbers 33, verses uh, 38, this is, it says this is the 40th year of Israel's journey. And the hope... The hope is that Israel has learned some lessons. The hope is that they're going to do better this time. But as we see in Numbers chapter 20 in just a moment, they still have much to learn. We're going to read together Numbers chapter 20 verses 1 through 13. If you want to follow along in uh, your Bibles, if you have the Bible app or will have the words on the screen behind me. Again, Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through, I think, 13. It begins this way. In the first month, of the, whole, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. And there Miriam died and was buried. And now there was no water for the community. And the people, they gathered in opposition to Moses and to Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. They fell dead because of their unfaithfulness. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Complaining again. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron, they went went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and they fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, take the staff, And you and your brother Aaron, you gather the assembly together and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. And so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. And he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with the staff. And water gushed out. And the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not trust in me. 
enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribim, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he showed himself holy among them. Many before have repeated the phrase, if we don't learn from the mistakes of our past, we are doomed to repeat them. It's a piece of uh, wisdom that has been around for a long time. But it's one of those pieces of wisdom that is much easier to apply to somebody else than it is to take into our own life and heart. That's what Israel has found. Right from the start here of the scripture, we have this correlation. This correlation uh, between the very beginning of Israel's journey and kind of towards the end here. We don't want to miss it. The people of Israel, they complained against Moses and God. They complained against Moses and God for bringing them out of the land where there is nothing to drink. That exact complaint, that exact complaint happens in in Exodus chapter 17, in the very start of their journey, all the way 40 years before, at the very beginning when they were just on their way to the promised land, they had the same complaint against God, and God answered it. They accused Moses at the same time of bringing all of them out into the desert so that they could die. And they went as far as to say that God should have left them as slaves in Egypt. This terrible complaint, this complaint that shows how short their memories are. All of a sudden, they forgot about the the chains and the whips. All of a sudden, they forgot about the Pharaoh who despised them, who was afraid of them, and how numerous they were growing. And so he declared that the firstborn son of all the uh, Israelites should be killed. All of a sudden, they forgot about how the the demands uh, that were put on them, the work kept increasing and increasing, and all the resources to accomplish the work kept decreasing. So much so that they called out to God for deliverance, and God delivered them. But they get thirsty and a little hungry, and all of a sudden they forget all about God's blessing, and all they can think about is their doom. On that occasion in Exodus chapter 17, Moses was commanded by God to go to the rock at Horeb and to strike it, and water would flow from it. And that's precisely what Moses did, and God's blessing came to the people. That's kind of just a short recap of what happened the first time in Exodus 17. And what I, I want us to see is what was the same and what was different. What was the same is the people's problem. They're thirsty. What was same is the people's reaction. They complained. Their complaint seems maybe a little worse this time because God's delivered them from this exact situation before. But how God told Moses to make water appear 
in Moses' attitude in the midst, that's different. This is where we begin to see some common patterns in our own lives. Like the Israelites, when things get difficult for us, we have this tendency We have this tendency to look at the situation around us and make it seem worse than it actually is. Israel may have been thirsty. They may have missed some of their favorite foods, but they were no longer tormented slaves. And God has been with them all of this way and provided for them again and again. We too. When we find ourselves in difficult times, we have this ability to see the worst around us and to miss the blessings. We too are forgetful of the ways God has delivered us, how He's been with us, and our complaints are evidence of this. We have to learn the lesson that Israel had such a hard time learning. And that is that the difficulty of the situation that we might find ourselves in isn't a testimony that God has abandoned us. God wanted nothing more. Nothing more for Israel in this moment. Nothing more for you and I than just simply trust in his good future. That's what he wanted for Israel. That's what he wants for us. The other pattern that emerges in Israel's complaints and in our own lives is how easy it is for us to shift the blame Something bad happens, we want to shift the blame. We get caught up in our own consequences, and all of a sudden, it's almost our default response to look for somebody or something else to blame but ourselves. We can trace this all the way back to Eve, blaming the serpent for her failings. In Israel, in the situation, rather than owning the situation, owning their choices and repenting of their part in their troubles, they blame Moses and Aaron. We have this natural response to avoid ownership. It's a few things we can learn from Israel's complaint against God. And while Israel's complaint against God, their complaint against Moses, while it's, it's terrible, it's a serious issue, it's not even the biggest issue in the chapter. The focus here is Moses and Aaron's response to the complaint. In verse 8, Moses, he's given some specific instructions Some specific instructions that read something like this. Take the staff, assemble the people, tell the rock to give its water. And as often the case here in this moment in the scripture, we don't get all the details, but what appears to happen is Moses loses it. 
He simply can't deal with the people's complaint any longer. And he attacks them. He starts out good. He goes to the Lord. He falls on his face. He gathers the people like he's supposed to. He has the staff in his hand. But then it stops. Rather than speaking to the rock, telling it and the people of God's mercy and power, making God the center of this moment, Moses launches off into this angry, impromptu speech. He says, you rebels in verse 10. And in anger, Moses, he puts himself in God's place and he judges the people of Israel. And then the next, we get something in the order of, you want water, I'll give you water. And he takes the staff and he strikes the rock twice. And here Moses makes himself out as the deliverer of God's people rather than God. He makes it appear as if it's from his own power that the water flowed out of the rock. And God's displeased with Moses. He's displeased with Moses. And we know this because he tells him that you will suffer the same same judgment that the people do. You won't be able to lead them into the promised land. Moses. Moses faces the challenge that so many of us do. A challenge that so often we don't even realize that we are facing to do the right thing, but to do it in the wrong way. God's desire in this moment for the people of Israel was to show his mercy and his compassion to answer this problem, this situation that they had. And rather than doing that, Moses, he kind of takes it on himself and he heaps judgment on them. He lords his power over them. And God shows Moses that he wasn't any greater than those he served said, because you have done this, because of the way you have done this, the people still get their water, but because of the way Moses went about it, the heart behind it, he says, you can't lead the people the final bit of the journey. This, by the way, this temptation to do the right thing, but to do it in the wrong way is one of the temptations that Jesus receives. In preparation for ministry, Jesus, it says in the scriptures, goes off into the wilderness and he, uh, he fasts and he prays. And it says that he is tempted by the devil there. And one of the ways the devil tempts him is not to ignore who he is, not to ignore what he's there to do on earth. It's to do what he's there, uh, been called to do on earth but to do it in a way that is in opposition to who God created him to be, against God's nature. 
The devil wanted Jesus to rule the earth through power and coercion rather than grace and love. Go against God's character to do the right thing in the wrong way. And it's a temptation that that we face. Oftentimes we think temptation is only happens when we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, but that's not how it works. Temptation comes at all times, especially when we're trying to follow God's will and direction. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that the devil disguises himself. Temptation rarely shows up as uh, uh, in red pajamas in a pitchfork. It often comes as a good idea with bad motivations. Motivations that say uh, it comes as wanting to do something good or right, but wanting to do it for our own glory. Wanting to do it so that other people look up to us and think how good we are. Wanting to come in and save the day rather than allowing God to be the one to save the day. Or how about just beating ourselves up with judgment when God wants to extend grace and mercy to us? Or judging other people so that we feel better about ourselves? These are never God's plans for us. Never God's plans. What I'm getting at today is how we do things is every bit as important as what we do. God, God looks as closely at our motivations as he does at our actions. And so in Numbers chapter 20, it reminds us It reminds us that temptation doesn't just come to those wandering, unfaithful people, but it comes to us all. And sometimes, sometimes the most difficult temptation is doing the right thing in the right way. Because oftentimes doing the right thing in the right way takes longer. Oftentimes, doing the right thing in the right way is harder than it is to do the right thing in the wrong way. Let's see if we can make this practical for us. Some ways just to kind of guard against this in our life. The first, I hope, is obvious to us. To kind of guard against this desire, this temptation to do the right thing in the wrong way. We have to check our motivations. God's motivation is always love. It may be tough, it may be firm, but it's never vindictive, it's never cruel. God's love led Jesus through his trial of temptation, through his ministry, all the way to the cross in his sacrificial death for us, for us all. 
And so when we begin to ask the why in some of our actions, why we do something, why we might want to do this new thing, if to display God's love isn't at the top of the list, it should give us great pause. Second thing, in addition to kind of examining our own heart, our own motives, is we need to ask God to examine our motives. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Sometimes we can trick ourselves. But hear me when I say we can never trick God. And so we need to get in kind of this daily practice of humbly coming before him and asking him to search our heart, to to look at our motivations and make sure that they are pure and good and in line with what he wants for us. Or maybe even a little bit more practical. When we have problems with people, a spouse, a child, a coworker, a friend at school, somebody in our life. One of the first places that we should go, that we should go as believers is to our hearts. To make sure that our motivations are, are right so that our words and our actions are right. James 4, 1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within? So many times we blame the challenge we're having in some relationship on a circumstance on the other person. In verses like this, say, no, look first inside yourself. Or how about when we have problems our spirit. James 4, 3, just a couple verses down, says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask, get this, with the wrong motives. I wonder. I wonder how many of our marriages could be better. If we not changed our actions, but we changed the heart we did them with. I wonder how much better we could be as parents if we didn't simply correct a behavior, but we demonstrated what it was like to have a pure and right heart that we worked on being in line with God's desires for us. I wonder what God could do differently in my life, in your life, this week. We just spent five minutes each day asking God, examine my heart, 
Is it in the right place? Am I uh, having this conversation with this person with the right motivations? Am I headed in the right place as a parent at work in some other area of my life? We struggled and worked through those questions. I wonder what God could do differently in me. pray about that as Daniel comes and leads us in a closing song. God, we read some verses like we read today that say you care not only about what we do, but how we do it. The motivation, the spirit behind it, God, those are intimidating words to us. We're thankful. We're thankful for a Holy Spirit that you give us that can examine and work through our heart and our life. And God, my prayer is that all of us pray that that happens today. And not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, God, because it's this continual thing that we need to be doing to humbly come before you. To humbly come before you and say, God, I don't know. Am I doing this for the right reasons? Is this really what my heart is supposed to be right now in this situation? I know it hurts, I know it's hard. But this is this what you want from me? Because God, that's hard work. It's difficult. It's painful at times. But I believe, I know you teach us that it's worth it. Because it makes us more of who you want us Help us to do that today and this week, God. In your name we pray. Amen.